Who in the room knows a good storyteller? You got a good storyteller with a friend? No one. Wow, you guys are around some pretty lame people. That's what I'm saying right now, right? I, okay, so if you have a good storyteller, you're just afraid to uh, raise your hand, right? I had a very good storyteller in my life, okay? And I bet that he was better than your storyteller because he was my grandpa, okay? My dad's dad, we called Pappy. And his wife we called Meemaw. And we would hang out at Pappy and Meemaw's all the time. They lived just about two minutes away from us when we lived in Indiana growing up. We'd be over there for holidays and family get-togethers, and we'd spend the night there. And when we spent the night there, what would often happen is Pappy would get us ready for bed. He'd tuck us in. And then what was tradition is there would be two stories to be shared. The first story was a biblical story. But he wouldn't tell you the name of the main character. You had to guess which character it was, which is classic, right? So he'd start, like, he had to build a boat. You're like, I bet it's Noah, right? The second story was always a story about his life, growing up, what he did, what he was about, some favorite stories of his, some funny stories of his, right? We would always have that. There was one story in particular, though, that happened later on in his life, Uh, when we were kids that we liked to hear a lot. We called it the red car story. And long story short, because I don't have time for the whole story, but long story short is my grandpa and grandma, they lived in an old parsonage by a church, an old church that was uh, being used for something different, and they lived across from a police station. So they lived across from the police station in town, the jail in town, and one day my grandpa was out mowing or he was doing something, and he noticed a red car pull up next to the van, the police van that was there. Someone got out, they put something under the tire, they got back in, and they drove away. My grandpa was like, that doesn't look common or normal, so he called the police department. They looked into it. Something fishy was happening, but they didn't go into it right away. They waited until they brought out inmates to make sure they caught the right people inside of this. My grandpa was there watching the whole time, right? He was retired. He could just watch what was happening. That story, for some reason, stuck with us. Now, he told it way better than I did, right? But we would ask for it over and over and over. We want to know the facts. We want to know where he was standing because we could go stand or we want to know what he was seeing because we could see what he was seeing, right? We wanted to know what was going on. But here's the beauty about being told a story from my grandpa is my grandpa, the reason the stories worked for him wasn't because of the facts. It wasn't because the stories were always the greatest and the grandest. It wasn't because he was perfect at telling stories, although I do think he had a, a, a pretty good handle on it, right? But it was because of the relationship he had with us. There is something to be said about his stories because he was our grandpa, he was our pappy, and his stories were way better than anybody else's stories. Today, we're going to jump into the question, what about science? And as we jump in, I want to start in a place that's very different than where maybe we usually would start. Because I believe inside of this conversation, the conversation of science and faith, God invites us into relationship to wrestle with the questions and the facts along the way. That's really important to note. That God, just like my grandpa, invited us into relationship, right? 
invites us into a relationship so we can wrestle with the questions and the facts that maybe you and I have about life and are wondering about. We're in this series called What Abouts, and we're looking at the top four reasons that people have doubts around Christianity. The four reasons are today we're going to look at science, next week we're going to look at exclusivity, week after that we're going to look at hypocrisy, the week after that we're going to look at suffering. These are the top four reasons according to Barna Research Group, and we're just going to look at them and say, what does this mean for us? And I said this last week, if you weren't here last week, we started it, and we started very introductory. Go back on our website, you can listen to the podcast version of it, we'd love for you to do that. But this is what I said, I'm not up here to answer all your questions, because I don't have all the answers, nor do I think that's beneficial, but rather just start a conversation my hope is to start a conversation to be able to encourage you to wrestle with the questions that you have in life, but also to maybe wrestle with those questions with those that believe differently than you. That it's not intimidating that someone believes something different. To be able to know how to talk about it and wrestle with it is really important. And so last week we started with this. The foundation to all of these conversations is really important. Because I could just run into it and give you a bunch of facts and answers and this and that. Or we could set a foundation of the culture of these conversations. And I said this, the culture has to be this, a compassionate tone and a courageous truth. Compassionate tone and a courageous truth. There's a guy by the name of Matt Smethurst. He writes a book, Before You Share Your Faith. He says this in his book, we must take care to lean in and listen well to climb into the other person's way of seeing and inhabiting the world. How are we going to best be able to have these conversations if you're a follower of Jesus? It's by having compassion and a compassionate tone, creating understanding, asking a lot of questions, listening really well, not being defensive, but opening to conversation even if you disagree. But at the same time, you have to have a courageous truth you got to jump into their shoes, per se. you got to jump into where they're at. you got to have a compassion, but you have to hold to your truth, which we would believe comes from Scripture and who God is and what he's about. And being able to do that is kind of tricky. It's not an easy thing to do, holding that line of compassionate tone and courageous truth. And if you miss anything else of today, I want you to know those things. And fight for those things to be a part of the conversation as you interact with people and interact even in your own setting around what is truth and what is going on inside of our worlds. Now, like I said last week, I want to make sure that this is a conversation, right? I want to make sure that our setting here is a conversation because we believe this. You don't have to agree with everything that I say to come here. Okay? You can be a part of what is going on. You can listen in. You can have conversations. You don't have to agree with everything we say to come here. We believe that more times than not, you feel like you belong before you might believe everything that we would believe, and that's okay. But we set up different ways to interact with this conversation that I want you to interact with as best as you can. The first one is this. Every series, every conversation we do, we print these booklets that are done by volunteers here at the campus. They're called series guides. We have a what about series guide that we would love for you to check out. It's on the back wall. 
Grab one as you leave. It's a devotional that takes you Monday through Saturday. It's a great way to stay uh, a part of the conversation as the week goes on. The second thing is this. On our website, we have a webpage. It's just simply called the What About Resources. On there are books and podcasts and websites that I've read and listened to and visited and used as resources. They're yours now. I would check them out, buy them, plug into them, be well with your time. We also have a Got Questions section at the bottom. If you have questions throughout this series, just type them in there with your email, the question. It gets shot directly to my email, and we will try to foster conversations inside of that. Then lastly is this. If you call Grace Church your home, say I'm a follower of Jesus, my invitation is that you would find an individual or a family to invite over to your house or invite to dinner that you know doesn't believe everything you believe, may not have the same faith as you, may not have the same belief system as you, and start a conversation Tim Keller says this, it's not about the new programs, events, the new uh, CDs, and all the stuff that we can put out. It's about talking to people. So let's be a church that talks to people and, and gets into their shoes a little bit and is able to empathize with what's going on, okay? Today, today we're going to run into a conversation that, I'll be honest, is not my ball of wax, right? It's not my thing. It's not my knowledge point, Okay, but I promise you, I promise you that as we walk into it, it'll be stretching and helpful, and that's my hope, because today we are going to talk about what about science? What about science? Which I know I say that, right? In the next couple weeks, I'm going to say certain things, and and for some people, we get tense. We're like, oh boy, where are we going to go with this, right? Because science and faith is kind of like a, a match, right? It's a versus, science versus faith. It kind of creates conflict. It's us versus them. That's generally, I think, how we see it. If you are a part of the church, then sometimes we can look and say, it's them. And I can imagine sometimes they can say, it's them on their side. And usually that's how it's presented. And I think that's something that's really interesting to this conversation, it's something to be noted because I don't think that is the culture that's going to allow us to have healthy conversations. And actually, maybe it's something that isn't actually meant to be. I'm going to share a quote here in just a minute that you may agree with, you may not agree with, and that's okay. It's not the point, but is interesting to start the conversation. Because my argument is this, that I'm not so sure that science and faith is actually an intellectual conflict as much as it is a cultural conflict. And in Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, he quotes a man by the name of Christian Smith who has written some books about kind of the secular, progressive kind of movement of our culture and different things that have taken place. And he says this, the conflict model of the relationship of science to religion was a deliberate exaggeration used by both scientists and educational leaders at the end of the 19th century to undermine the church's control on their institutions and increase their own cultural power. Now listen, doesn't mean that all educational leaders in science is bad, doesn't mean that all church stuff is bad. What I find fascinating in that is he points to something different than an intellectual disagreement. That maybe this conversation is more cultural than we like to give it credit 
What if this conversation isn't what about science, but what if this conversation is how do science and faith actually hold hands? Because I think science and faith actually hold hands more than we like to give it credit. Because science and faith, I would say first and foremost, can hold hands. They can hold hands. Science is compatible with faith, and faith is compatible with science. They oftentimes, if you kind of wrestle with it, aren't in disagreement. They actually can play together. My fear is this, is that inside of the arguments and the conflict, we can create an us versus them. And so as a part of the church, right, I grew up in the church, I was a pastor's kid, right? It's all about faith, it's all about leaning into God, and we can look over here to those that maybe disagree or are doing science or are doing medicine or whatever it may be, and it's them, and we push them to the side. Well, they're the enemy, Right? And I can imagine it happens on this side too. And I think that that is so unfortunate because what that does is it never allows for healthy conversations to unravel inside of each world. But what if they can hold hands and in partnering, it allows us to know who God is and what he has done for us more and more. What if it allows us to press into that? Because here's what's interesting. Faith and science have held hands. It actually is really, really common in history to see science and faith holding hands together in a pursuit of knowing who God is more. Rebecca McLaughlin, who writes the book Confronting Christianity, I'll, I'll note her quite a few times in this uh, sermon, writes this in her book, Historic. Christianity prized the life of the mind. Historic Christianity prized the life of the mind. That there was this pursuit, this wonder, this beauty, this wisdom that came with research into the mind and understanding the mind and the world of the mind. There was this desire to understand more about life and what is happening. There wasn't a conflict. And what's interesting is many early Christians... And many early scientists, I should say, claim to be Christians. And you look at the historic uh, Christian uh, and science ties, it's pretty influential. Starting here, the early development of modern science. So the scientific method, all you students in science class right now, where you're like, boo, scientific method. No, 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 no. Don't boo it, okay? Because the modern science as we know it, the scientific method was done and created by two Franciscan friars, Roger Bacon and William Ockham. So listen, followers of Jesus, people that believed in God and was pursuing him with their life, came up with how we would look at science nowadays. Galileo claims to be a Christian or claimed to be a Christian. Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, Lord Kelvin were all Christians. And even Albert Einstein, um, he would have looked up to scientists who were Christians, interesting enough. And so Christianity and science, for a long time, we're not at odds to, uh, at each other, but we're playing as partners together in the pursuit of knowledge and understanding more. And what's interesting is, just as much as faith plays into science, and as much as 
faith needs science, I would argue, I think science takes faith at the same time. I don't think they're mutually separated. I don't think faith just by itself, right, just kind of existing out here without science doesn't allow us to see the beauty and the wonder of who God is. And science existing out here by itself, it actually takes faith to believe that still. So they play together. And so today my hope is this. My goal is not to get into the details to prove who's right, who's wrong. I'm not smart enough to do that, so I'm just not going to try to do that, right? Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of here's what we think about this and look at this word in Genesis 1 and this is what this means. I'm not trying to prove something up here. I want to just give you three things that we would attest belief to that makes us distinct as a Christian church, that we would believe about God and creation and how this world works, just three very simple things. You'll be like, he didn't answer any of my questions. I probably won't answer any of your questions, right? I just want to set a foundation for this conversation. My hope is inside of those three things, it gives you some sort of foundational footing and you can tap into resources from there. My goal is not to divide, but more bring us together and bring into together some beauty and some wonder to how science and faith kind of work together inside of this all, okay? And so that is my goal inside of this. Now, before I go there, okay, before I go to the three things, I have to be honest, I did a lot of reading and research and in running into resources. So I'm going to give credit to four different people or entities inside of this. It's really who kind of built this sermon. Uh, reading books by Tim Keller, reading books by Rebecca McLaughlin, Confronting Christianity is one of the resources online. Sean McDowell, his videos, some of his books, resources. And then The Bible Project, which is a website that highlights the story of Jesus through every book of the Bible. All four of those I tapped into immensely, okay? So most of this, you'll see quotes, passages, is not because I'm so smart, but rather I tapped into really smart people, okay? So where do we start? I want to just start with three things, and then we're going to end in John, actually, but I want to start with three things, three claims that we would believe that kind of give us direction inside of this conversation as church. First one is this, creation has a creator, we would believe that. Creation has a creator. We believe that creation has a creator. And what's interesting is as I dove into research and into scientific journals and articles and things of that nature, more and more of science is coming back and scientists are coming back saying that the universe had a starting point. More and more scientists are kind of coming to that agreement and to that conclusion, which makes this next quote by Francis Collin, who is a scientist, modern-day scientist and follower of Christ, very interesting. He would say this, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. He's saying in the scientific world, right, most commonly the Big Bang is what's talked about. Then he goes on, which is interesting, 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unmistakably bright flash of energy from an infinitely small point that implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to come from outside of nature. 
Right? What Francis Collin is saying is as more research and as more gets dove into here, we see that the beginnings of the universe had a starting point. And it had a starting point. It is beyond, beyond what we could even imagine nature, the world, the universe is. And it is hard to believe that nature could have done that in and of itself, right? There has to be something outside of nature, outside of us, outside of the universe that puts us into place because so many things are working together in an effort for one. And as we look at the science, of course, but there's also biblical understanding beside that because in the story of God, we see that there's actually mention to a starting point. There's mention to a starting point in the very first book. Genesis 1 is where I have you right now. And in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we see the same kind of conversation that Francis Collin kind of introduced scientifically, introduced biblically by a man named Moses. Moses is writing this account about God creating the heavens and the earth. This is what Moses writes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In this passage, we see a number of different words that pop out to me, the first one being in the beginning, right? Any good story in the beginning? Or long, long ago, far, far away in a galaxy, right? In the beginning, something started, something happened. If you read on, God created the heavens and the earth. That word beginning in the Hebrew, it means a preliminary point of time, not a starting point of time. You might be like, why is that important? Like we're just getting into the details of it, right? Why that's important is it tells me this, is that that is the point that we know started life on this earth and life in the universe. What it tells me is it's not the starting point for God, who is the creator. It tells me it's a preliminary starting point for what we know of as we look around our world and our earth. There is a time marker. But what it tells me is that God sits outside of that and that he has always been and will always be. Gives me a lot of comfort, actually. And inside of that, a God who exists outside of our time and outside of our measures, all-powerful, decided to create the universe, which was formless and empty. If you translate those words, you get wild wastelands. It's like the wild, wild west, right? Back before creation, right? Wild and wasteland above a dark abyss. It's basically chaotic. It's chaos. There's no form. There's no order. There is nothing. There's nothingness. It just wasn't. But we also see another character, another word in here. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What's interesting is the Spirit of God hovered and was the one who brought order to chaos. It's the one that brought order to chaos. That we would believe that creation has a creator. And that creator sits outside of time. That creator looked at the wasteland, the, the wildness, the dark abyss, and created into it order, which you and I see as life. And he created it in seven days. Why seven days is important is because the number seven 
means perfection. It's correlated to perfection. And so God created in his fullest, in the beauty and the wonder of who he is, into creation in a perfectness. We see that in the Garden of Eden. What's interesting is this. If you go on in that Genesis story, as you read throughout the lines of that Genesis story, you read parallelism. That what happens in day one correlates to what happens in day four. What happens in day two correlates to what happens in day five. What happens in day three correlates to day six. In day three, God creates the land. In day six, he places animals and human beings on the land. It all works together. That we would believe a creator formulated, gave birth to, and spoke with his word life into being. So creation has a creator. Secondly, the design has a designer. This would be commonly called the argument of fine-tuning. The design has a designer. And what this argument in kind of a creationism worldview, biblical worldview would say, is that creation was built specifically for us to be able to live in it. It was perfectly built for us to be able to have life on this earth. If anything was off by one millionth or one million million, everything wouldn't be as we see it. We'd blown the smithereens. We would be chaotic, be crazy. Francis Collins would continue, and he says this inside. If you want to go to the next slide. Oh, there it is. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, which I love because Francis Collins, he wants to come at it from not only biblical but scientific He's like, when you look at the perspective of a scientist of the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. Dun, 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 right? There are 15 constants, gravity, etc. You can go on and on and on, that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, which I can't even fathom what that looks like, right? The universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. So think about that. The design has a designer that perfectly put things into play, that if anything was off by one million million, it wouldn't exist as we know it. What I love about this idea of the constants and the beauty and the wonders of what God created is it points to that. It points to that not only in you and I, but in the universe, there's some startling numbers that if you were to get your mind around how we interact as a world and how we interact inside of earth, it would just blow your mind up. First is this. Did you know there are 8.7 million different species of plants and animals that scientists believe are on our earth? Most of them we have not even tapped into. Most of them they would say they haven't even gotten into the details of, but they would estimate that there's some 8.7 million different species of plants and animals. Earth, Earth, the planet we live on, called home, is about 93 million miles from the sun. Any closer, we're Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? Any further, we're Frozen Dinner, right? So either way, if we're off by one million million, right? It doesn't work out. It doesn't play out. Scientists estimate, I've read this in multiple articles, like I said, 
I'm just giving you the research, okay? Estimate that there are between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in our universe. They can't, they're like, we've never visited them, right? That's what they estimate. But here's the reality. If there was five, it would blow our minds. There is 100, blow our minds. There is 200, blow our minds. If there's 1,000, blow our minds. If there's 100 million, blow our minds. We can't even fathom what our own galaxy does. What I love about this is all of those things are working perfectly together so that you and I could exist and have life and breathe the air and run into opportunities and exist with animals and creatures all over the place and live, not being Kentucky Fried Chicken or Frozen Dinner, right? But what's even more baffling is this is that the God who is all-powerful, we believe, created all of us and designed us to interact, knows you and I personally and created us very specifically at the same time. We see this play out in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being, David writes to God and, and prays. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We also see in Luke 12, 7, Jesus speaking to his disciples, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The all-powerful God who created the galaxies and galaxies and galaxies and created the eight-something million species that we can't even fathom or understand or get into depths of research created us to be right where we're at so that we can have enough heat, but not too much, is the same God who created you and I to look the way we look and be different in the ways that we're different to give him glory. Because you can go out here to the galaxies in the universe, but if you dive into our body and you look at a simple little three-letter acronym, DNA, you all of a sudden see the beauty of what's happening. Because here's what DNA is. DNA, all of our genes are made from it. Not all DNA is genes, though. And if you stretch the DNA in one cell all the way out, it would be about two meters long. And all the DNA in all your cells, if you put it together, all the DNA in all your personal cells, you put it all together, would be about twice the diameter of the solar system. That solar system we were just talking about, it's a galaxy. DNA that sits inside of us, they estimate it would be the diameter twice of that. What? What's interesting is this. You know that 99.9% .9 of our DNA is the same? That 0.1% is different and is what gives us the different abilities to see beauty and wonder and difference, and color, and personality, and all of those things. But there is wonder to be had around the designer who designed us, not just to see how powerful he is, but to see how personal he is. That he brought it close to home inside of that. So creation as a creator, designer, design as a designer. The last one is this, morality has a moral definer. And you're like, I thought we were talking about science, right? This weaves into science. I know it weaves into ethics and all the different things like that. But I think it's worthy of note. Morality has a moral definer. 
It's interesting when you look at human nature and culture and people groups, how aligned our traditional morality actually is. C.S. Lewis, who writes The Abolition of Man, says that as he looks at all sorts of different cultures and people groups, there are similar, same human morality, traditional morals that we hold to and run up against, kindness and fairness and equality and peace and justice, things that we all want to see happen. He would later write this, C.S. Lewis writes, I am very doubtful whether history shows us one example of a man who having stepped outside traditional morality and attained power has used that power benevolently, right? Someone who has power, stepped outside of that power, used it for, or stepped outside of the traditional morals, used it for good. Example, World War II era, right? You think about what is going on and how that is playing out. What's interesting is Sean McDowell would say this, right? Because there is an argument inside of our cultural moment where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. There is no moral, greater moral truth. There's no universal truth. Sean McDowell in a very funny video would say this. You have a conversation with someone, says your truth is your truth. I don't think there's an ultimate moral truth. Just step in front of them in the lunch line and see if there actually is, Right? You start to dive into there's a universal moral truth that whether we like to admit it or not, we play by, we play by and have rules by. You step in front of me in the lunch line, I'll move you forcefully, right? And what's interesting is inside of our Christian worldview, inside of our biblical worldview, we actually would see that a lot of what we believe about evil and good plays out inside of a biblical worldview. Rebecca McLaughlin would comment that the biblical worldview is the only worldview that would see evil as evil. It would see evil as evil and being able to run into that. Religious worldview, seeing it as such, posing good versus evil, not just that's my truth. But that's your truth. What I love about the story of the Bible is God creates us differently than all his other creatures. He didn't create us to be a part of something just like the lions and the tigers and the giraffes. He created us different in his likeness and his image. He created us with a call and a charge to uphold moral responsibility in this world. That he's invited us to be a part of what it means to be kind and gracious and just inside of his world. And of course, sin has disrupted that but you and I have been invited into something more and throughout history we see that a religious worldview in particular a Christian worldview plays out oftentimes in valuing human beings lives and fighting for the least of these now I just talked about three things that we would say are we uphold that we would see as clues to what we believe and ultimately what we lean into about God and creation and life and things like that. And I scratch the surface. So you're like, I have a lot of questions. I understand. Send them in the got questions. I'll try to get back to you, right? But here's the reality. I don't think that God introduced himself to us just merely for facts. Here's what's interesting about my grandpa, right? My grandpa could have told us stories that had a lot of facts and gotten all the facts right, but never 
leaned into the relationship with us. And maybe the facts were right, maybe they were all there, but without a relationship, that story and that bond and that relationship and what I would lean into and believe be kind of shaken a little bit. God does not start his story with, in the beginning, fact, 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 I created the world in this way and I did this thing. One, we wouldn't even know how to read that, but two, he starts in relationship. I think it's really important to note that without relationship, these facts and these questions, they go meaningless because we don't know who to run to them with. And all of a sudden, I wonder if the question isn't what about science, but what if God purposely started with relationship and invited us to bring our questions and our thoughts to him? We need to wrestle with the scientific information don't hear me wrong. There's some beautiful things that come along with that. National Geographic, you watch a documentary, you're like, Poof, that's awesome, and God is real, right? You're just amazed by what science has provided us. But the reality is this. God has introduced us to relationship where he wants us to wrestle with him inside of that, which is what makes his story all the more beautiful and baffling because we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but also we see the story come back around in the New Testament in John. And in John 1, we see John write very similar wording to what Genesis 1 was written out as. John 1 writes, John writes this, in the beginning was the word, right? Word was with God, word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was that uh, was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's what's really important. John is not mistaken. He wants you to connect his first writing to the very first writing we read in Genesis 1. He wants you to connect those two because what John is trying to do is he's trying to tell us it's about a relationship. And I want to tell you who the guy is to run into when you have conversations and questions and who the Savior of the world is. Because John tells us this first and foremost, Jesus is the word. You're like, what? Word what? Jesus is the word. And that's really important, maybe not in our cultural moment, but in the cultural moment that John was interacting with, he was speaking to both Jews and Greeks. Jews would have believed the word, literally that word, the word meant God's spoken word and the power that comes with God's spoken word. But the Greeks over here, they would have believed the word, that word, the word would have meant a power that brought order to chaos. Have we seen that before? You've seen that before, right? Yeah. Because what John is doing, he's saying, whether you're Jew or you're Greek, whether you're part of God's chosen people or you're a Gentile, no matter who you are, you are longing and searching for something. There, there is chaos. We see that in the beginning. And there is chaos now. And we are all looking for order. And what John is introducing us to is this, a relationship. Not just facts, here's how to get it done, 
Here's how you can solve it. But a relationship with the God in the universe. Because what John tells us is this, that Jesus isn't just a human being that was in the first century, but that he is God, fully God, who existed in Genesis 1 at the creation, was a part of it. And everything that was made was through him and for him and without him wouldn't be made. And then he pops onto the scene in the first century as a human being. And what we see Jesus do, he put order into chaos at creation, and then he comes to this earth in human flesh, fully human, fully God, to put order uh, into chaos. To bring chaos to order. How does he do that? By laying down his life at the cross and rising again. So that you and I can have order in our spiritual lives through the man, son of God, king of the universe, Jesus. John's like, don't miss it. Don't miss it. If anything else, John is the, or Jesus is the word. But he doesn't stop there. He tells us Jesus is God. He says, Jesus and God, verse 3 and 4, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This is one of the most controversial claims of Christianity. Jesus is the living God of the universe in flesh. We'll talk more about that next week. But John tells us that the word Jesus was in the beginning with God, was God, and with God in the beginning. That Jesus is the same person as God. That Jesus is God and he's functioning in the person, the Son. And inside of that, it's really important to note that John wants us to understand that there is no dividing of the two. They are one. So at creation, at the resurrection, in spirit right now, Jesus exists as God and he is with us. Same God, different persons, the eternal God of the universe walking this earth. And then lastly, Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. As the worship team comes up, I want to end here. Jesus is the Word. With God, was God, is God. Everything was created in and through Him. He is the eternal God who came to our earth to save us. Here's what's really powerful to note is that Jesus came to this earth as fully human. He humbled himself. Philippians 2 tells us that. But he fully was God. And what we see play out is this, is that as Jesus walked along this earth, whenever you see his divinity show up, it's used to help, serve, save someone else dying on the cross for us, rising again, rose again. Over 500 people, individuals saw him, tested to his rising from the dead, claimed that as their belief and faith, and several of them ended up dying for that belief. And so today, what I don't want to do is faith over here, science over here. I didn't, for the life of me, didn't want you to hear me say, here's what church is for and we're against science that is not at all the conversation because I believe that faith needs science 
the glory of God is seen in the wonders around us, from the minuscule DNA to the galaxies we haven't even seen. That is the glory of the God of the universe who sits out of time, sits outside of any person, sits outside of anything that you and I can create. Always been, always will be. And at the same time, science takes faith. They work together. And my encouragement to you is this, is to not just think about the questions or conversations, but to think about the relationship you have with Jesus. For some of us, it starts and says, maybe your conversation is, what is my relationship with Jesus? Maybe you're here and your world is chaotic, and I'm talking personal world. Whether it's addiction, relational, work-wise, finances, it's just chaotic. And you're trying to find order in and of yourself, and Jesus has offered you a way through his life, death, and resurrection. Are you willing to trust him, run into relationship, and bring your questions with it? And if you want to talk more about that, I'd love after service, email us, call us during the week to talk about that. But for others of us, if you're a follower of Christ, don't tune out. I worry, if you're a follower of Christ, I do this all the time, one of two things. I leave my questions on the table or I process them through Google, right? Which Google's awesome in its own right. But I have a relationship with the all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God of the universe. That if I have questions and processing, why not start with the one who created everything, designed everything, put morals into work for our good? My challenge to you is what would it look like for you to bring your hard stuff and questions to the God of the universe who you call Savior? Then we can talk about Google. Because he's inviting us into a relationship, not just facts. Father, we thank you because you are the almighty God of the universe. We praise you. We ask right now that your spirit would hover over this place just like it did at the beginning of what we call time in this universe. That you would bring order to chaotic lives. That you would bring grace and mercy. That you bring justice and healing. That you would do a work in our own lives that would overflow into the lives we get to interact with, Father. You are God, and you are so good. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Father, we ask that you would just lead us into this moment. Father, would you challenge our hearts? We're thankful for you, Father. We thank you for all that you've done for us. pray this in your name.